to this Medieval Academy of America podcast. My name is Stephanie Azzarello, and I received my PhD from the University of Cambridge in 2021, and I was based in the Faculty of History of Art and Architecture. I specialize in medieval manuscripts from the late Trecento and early Quattrocento, specifically from Venice. My focus is musical manuscripts, particularly those that belong to a religious order called the Camaldolese, and that is exactly what I'll be talking about today. I think it's great that you want to spend some time in late medieval Venice because it was quite the place to be at the end of the 14th and into the 15th century. And in this podcast, I'm going to talk about images that were produced in Venice during this time in an effort to try and deepen the conversation around the multinational nature of medieval art. Just a few things that I think will be helpful on our little trip into the past. While I will definitely be referring to this time period that we're in as the 14th and 15th centuries, I'll also be using the terms Trecento and Quattrocento. Trecento to refer to dates in the 1300s and Quattrocento for dates in the 1400s. I think that it's important that you think of these little notes as signposts on the map for our journey. I also want to clarify that the art I will be discussing was made within the context of Western European Christianity, but as you'll learn, the artists and the images that I'm going to be talking about with you draw on mythological, religious, geographic, and textual ideologies and sources that come from regions and traditions from outside of this specific context. We're stepping back into a world filled with the hustle and bustle of any modern city, except one that was bound by the social, religious, and political practices of the late medieval world, which are very different than the ones that bind our society today. Venice during the late Trecento was a kaleidoscopic whirlwind of people and traditions from different parts of Europe, but also parts of the Middle East, Africa, and Asia. The interconnectedness of 21st century life is not that different from the vast networks that were enmeshed as a result of travel, diplomacy, trade, and commerce. In this podcast, I'm going to be talking about an anonymous painter who, although active in Venice and we believe was based in Venice, drew on myriad visual inspirations from surrounding geographical regions and combined them with the local Venetian artistic traditions to create a new and exciting visual language. My hope here today is to highlight the very international and multinational nature of this artist's work, which remains as the extant evidence that demonstrates and reinforces the notion that people in the medieval and early modern world were very interconnected. Just as art does not exist in a vacuum, neither does community nor culture. In terms of setting the stage, we're going back to late Trecento Venice, which had seen much international travel via pilgrims, diplomats, and certainly through economic trade. So we need to look south for a minute to Florence, and in the heart of Florence was a monastery, which is still there, although not functional, called Santa Maria degli Angeli. And this monastery was home to a group of Camaldolese monks, and I'll tell you more about them in a moment. This monastery was famous for its scriptorium, or writing room, to put it in lay terms, 
where the monk artists produced many beautiful and important works of art, such as illuminated manuscripts, altarpieces, and the church also has sculptures and frescoes. So now we need to turn back around and look northeastward towards Venice again, where there are two other important monasteries, also home to Camaldolese monks that were nestled in the lagoon. And these two monastic houses, Semichele in Isola and Semitia de Morano, were very closely linked with their Florentine sister house in terms of liturgy, lifestyle, and artistic practices. But unlike Santa Maria degli Angeli, the Venetian houses are less familiar to many scholars of art history and religious studies. And narrowing it down even further, more is known about San Michele than San Mattia. And San Mattia is the particular monastery that we'll be talking about today. So now that we have our location and our geographical boundaries set, let's get into the artist who's at the center of this podcast. Earlier, I mentioned an anonymous illuminator whose work has, at least in my humble opinion, helped to redefine early Quattrocento Venetian visual culture. While I'm not the first or the only scholar to study his work, I've certainly tried to unpack his oeuvre more fully in the hopes of deepening our understanding of his contribution to Venetian art. Since we have no documents linking him to the works comprising his oeuvre or any signed works or any indication of a possible name, he's been given a name based on a major illumination project that he did, which we assigned to him based on stylistic features. Scholars have called this anonymous master the master of the Murano Gradual, which refers to a type of liturgical book that he painted for San Mattia. Now, Gradual is a book that contains the sung parts of a religious mass. And in this context, again, I'm talking about Western Christianity. This is actually a nice segue into the important background information that you'll need about the Camaldolese order and that I promised you a moment ago. This particular religious group falls under the umbrella of Benedictine monasticism, which means they follow the rule of St. Benedict. However, they are a reformed branch of Benedictine monasticism, which means that while they still adhere to certain facets of Benedictine rule, they also follow their own ideologies and have their own rule. They were founded by St. Romuald in 1025 after he had a dream instructing him to bring a new order of monks into the world that would adhere to a much stricter lifestyle. The Camaldolese ultimately seek to blend the two monastic ways of life, the Eremitic, which taps into the, the hermit, solitary prayer aspect of monastic life, with the Cenobitic, which is the coming together and being together for the celebration of Mass and the Divine Office and the taking of meals. St. Romuald had felt that Benedictine monasticism had become too Cenobitic and needed to be brought back into a balance. The order also includes women, as shortly after it was founded, female monastics were eager to share in this new form of Benedictine life. The two houses in Venice, San Mattia and San Michele, were founded because they were so isolated and so really spoke to that, what Romuald felt was a need for the isolation and the aromatic aspect. The once large complexes of San Michele and San Mattia sadly no longer exist, but if you go, you can still visit parts of the cloisters. As a new branch, the Camaldolese needed their own liturgical books, and choir books are a crucial part of any monastic library. For listeners who are unfamiliar with choir books, these tend to be large-scale volumes because they are often set upon lecterns and read by multiple monks, 
at one given time. So they have to be quite large and they contain the music and the texts used for celebrating the mass, the liturgy. Singing and chanting was and still is a vital part of celebrating the mass. And the monks at both the Florentine and the Venetian houses wanted lavish volumes with images in addition to the music. Santa Maria degli Angeli in Florence had a famous 20 volume set made for themselves, which ultimately functioned as a model for the much smaller set that was made or commissioned for San Mattia for their use. Sadly, the sets of both houses were dismembered in the early 1800s after Napoleon shut the monasteries and looted their treasures. The choir books of San Mattia, which are the focus of this podcast, exists as two intact volumes, one in Berlin and one in Milan. And those two volumes are both graduals. So remember, graduals contain the sung parts of the mass, and they are referred to as the Berlin gradual and the Milan gradual. Not terribly original, but easy to remember. Now there's evidence that tells us that the set for San Mattia probably had four volumes. So if two are intact, the next question should be, well, what happened to the other two volumes? Those two volumes were cut up and the fragments, the illuminations, were taken out and sold as miniature paintings. So the ones that we know about exist in private and public collections literally all over the world, from LA to Paris to Moscow. At the moment, we've scholars have traced nearly 50 cuttings, and I'm going to be talking about two of them today, in addition to a third image, which is part of one of the intact volumes. Before I get into the nitty gritty of those details, there are a couple more things I wanna share about these manuscripts and their historical context. As I mentioned, the anonymous master, who we now call the Murano master, was responsible for the lion's share of the corpus. So based on stylistic analysis, we believe that the Murano master created the Berlin gradual. And we also think that the, the majority, in fact, all the 50 cuttings, we also think that he was responsible for those as well. Now, those 50 cuttings made up two additional volumes, as I said, and they, they made up what is probably the Sanctorale, which just means that it celebrated the feasts that were honoring various saints, like St. Saint Catherine, St. Saint Blaise, St. Andrew, amongst others. The stylistic features of these fragments share similarities with the images in the Belong Gradual, so that's why we put them into his body of work. Now, this leads the Milan Gradual, which is the other intact volume. And this entire book has been, has been ascribed to the over of another artist who in, in the, on the opposite end of the spectrum was extremely well-known. His name is Cristoforo Cortesi. We know a lot about him. He was very, very active in Venice. So he probably had a very active workshop because he had many commissions on the go. And we have lots of documents that tell us about him. So by comparison, we have one artist that we know nothing about, and then we have this other artist whom we know everything about. I mean, he was so active that if he were alive today, he would be on all social media platforms. So you have these, you have these opposite poles when it comes to the, to the artists who were really doing the work. So that's the historical context, the artistic context. And now I think we should get into the actual narratives that, that I want to talk about. So I'm going to be looking at three specific images that tell stories of three specific miracle legends. 
So without further ado, I'd like to get into the first one, which we call the Beirut Miracle Legend. Now, I find it almost comical that the word miracle has become so ubiquitous in modern speech. So, for example, you know, think about how many times you yourself have said it or you've heard someone say, oh, it was a miracle we made it there on time or, oh, it's going to take a miracle to get this to meet this deadline. You know, the reason it's funny is because technically that is the correct definition of the word because the word itself is defined as a quote-unquote surprising event, but it's also defined as a highly improbable or extraordinary event. And miracles were considered to be very rare, especially during the late Trecento, or the Quattrocento. So yes, we use this term ubiquitously, but these events were actually quite infrequent. And in the religious world of the Kamaldolese monks, looking at these images of miracles in their choir books probably helped them to feel like these extraordinary happenings were possible. And the Murano master gave visual shape to these magical narratives using the visual language that he crafted together from various sources. So there are loads of images I could have talked about today, but I wanted to tackle three that really embody the Murano master's creative cultural blend of colors and shapes and visual language. It, there, there also appear to be miracle legends that don't have their origins in Venice, which tells us that the spirituality of the monks at San Mateo was perhaps wider and broader than previously thought. Now, they would have stuck to their traditional Benedictine liturgy, but they've also peppered it with stories that obviously mean something to them. So, as I said, I'll be discussing two cuttings and one image from the Milan gradual, which is still intact. But the first image up for grabs today, as I said, refers to something called the Beirut miracle legend. And this miracle legend concerns a, a narrative that isn't, isn't necessarily familiar uh, to most people who went to Sunday school, for example. So. The first cutting has simply historically been called a scene of sacrilege, um, and I'll explain why. This little image currently lives in Paris in the Musée Cluny, which is home to a wealth of medieval art, and I recommend you go if medieval art is your thing. This cutting is not obvious, it's not an obvious biblical narrative, um, and what we're looking at is we see the inside of a church, which is clear from the altar and the altarpiece, which has a scene of the crucifixion on it. So it's very meta in that way because it's a scene inside of a scene. Standing in front of the altarpiece is a figure with a long dark beard who wears an elaborate armor and is holding a vexillum, which is just a long stick with a pointed sharp end. And this figure appears to be jabbing that, that pointed end at the figure of the crucified Christ while a couple of terrified looking monks cower in the corner. The image itself is beautiful. The Marana master has painted the walls of the church moss green. The figures are wearing these incredible ocean blue colored garments and the floor has these tiles that just pop with this gorgeous pomegranate red pigment. But beauty aside, the question is, what is going on in this scene? Until recently, this cutting was largely ignored and the scant evidence or scholarship that does exist, just as I said, called it a scene of sacrilege, which I guess is the default description. 
What nobody seemed to notice or at least acknowledge in the scholarship is that the soldier is wearing a pomegranate red hat that curls at the end and has a white fluffy rim. Now this would be a visual disconnect from his Roman style armor. And so the hat must mean something because it's an outlier, it's a visual outlier. And it wasn't until my attention was directed to the Beirut miracle legend, that things started to click in my brain. So you might be asking yourself, what exactly is the Beirut miracle legend? Now, I alluded to the fact that it's not a well-known story, but in a nutshell, back in the 8th century in Beirut, there was a pious Christian who had an image or an icon, we're not, we're not exactly sure, it varies depending on the source that you're reading, but he had a crucified Christ in his bedroom on the wall. And when he moved, he for some reason left it behind, and the new owner, a Jewish man, didn't notice that this Christian icon was on the wall. One evening, when he had some of his Jewish friends over, they did notice it, and they became very upset, and they just declared the man a blasphemer, and they began to strike the icon with hammers and knives and nails, and it miraculously began to bleed, according to the legend, and this flowing blood was like a divine elixir and converted, miraculously converted everybody to Christianity. So the story itself isn't typically well known in Western Christian liturgy. So there are a few questions we definitely need to ask. Firstly, is this the Beirut miracle legend we see in the cutting? Secondly, if so, why would these Venetian monks want to include this narrative in their liturgical books? Thirdly, how did this story become known in Venice? Since we only have about 40 minutes, I'll give you the Coles Notes versions and try to answer these questions as best I can. Question one. Aside from the Roman soldier striking at the altarpiece, it's the hat that he's wearing that should give us all pause, because it's clearly not a helmet. It doesn't match the armor. As I said, it's bright red, it's extremely long and pointed, and it has a white fluffy brim. Historically, this is the type of hat that Jews were required to wear by law in Venice during the late medieval and early Renaissance to mark their status as Jewish. Much like other garments that denote someone's social or religious standing, this hat signaled to the community that the person wearing it was Jewish. So this figure could very well be one of the Jewish men from the Beirut miracle legend striking out at the Christian icon. Question two, why would the monks at San Mattia want this legend and this image included in their religious books? Remember, this cutting belonged to a set of choir books that they would have used to celebrate the Mass. And this legend is not, as it turns out, unfamiliar to the Camaldolese houses in and around Venice and Arezzo, where the mother house is. This legend is actually connected to a feast called the Passio Imaginis, or the Passion of the Image, which refers to the suffering of the image and also makes reference to the suffering of Christ during the crucifixion. There is a record of this feast, which is celebrated on November 6th, in the calendar of a printed missal, so the missal contains the red text of the Mass, a printed missal that once belonged to San Mattia's sister house, San Michele, also in the Venetian Lagoon. So we have a record of this feast, the Passio Maginus, being celebrated. Now remember, these two monasteries were very closely linked, liturgically, artistically, and socially. So we have this written evidence that would suggest San Mattia would have been familiar with the Passio Imaginis. Question three, how did this Middle Eastern legend come to the attention of the Camaldolese monks in Venice? Well, the best place to start would be to look at the treasury of San Marco, which is the great basilica on the mainland. 
San Marco is home to a variety of relics. And for those of you listening who are unfamiliar with relics, they're incredibly cool, albeit slightly macabre, depending on what the relic is. So a relic is a holy object, usually connected to a saint or a miraculous event that is kept, usually by a church, as a reminder of that person or that event. For example, there's a very famous relic at Chartres Cathedral in France, which is the veil of the Virgin Mary. But relics can also be things like nail clippings, bones, teeth, hair, sometimes even whole corpses. So if we go back to San Marco, remember that I said earlier, according to the Beirut legend, the icon began to bleed and the blood was so miraculous it caused the entire group of Jewish men to instantly convert to Christianity. Well, slightly later, later in the legend, it talks about how news of this miraculous blood reached Rome, and then the blood was collected into these little bottles, and they were transported back to Italy and deposited at various locations. One of these ampules ended up in the treasury of San Marco. So there is a precedence for this legend in Venice. Since the monks at San Mattia and San Michele followed a liturgical tradition close to the one practiced at San Marco, it's probably not that surprising that this legend and this feast were significant to these monasteries. What is worth noting is that San Mattia's famous sister house, Santa Maria degli Angeli, does not appear to have had the same liturgical affinity for the Beirut miracle, and they don't seem to have celebrated the Passio Imaginist either. I know this because when I was cross-referencing the feasts celebrated at San Mattia with those celebrated at Santa Maria degli Angeli, the Passio Imaginis is not found in the list of their reconstructed choir books. So this tells us that this particular feast, and apparently this legend, held more spiritual significance for the Venetian Camaldolese than it did for the Florentine branch. Now Florence was by no means a stranger to cross-cultural interactions. But an image like the one I've been telling you about really conveys just how multicultural a place like Venice was and still is. I mean, again, this shouldn't be surprising given its status as a port city. Venice had travelers, pilgrims, diplomats, traders and merchants crisscrossing their way through its floating walls, bringing with them myriad stories, myths, ideologies and beliefs. The Beirut miracle legend is an example of an image with a cross-cultural narrative that was brought to Venice via the translocation of a relic. But what about an image with a narrative that came to the port city along the pilgrimage routes? This brings us to the next image and the next miracle legend I want to talk about called the Materia bathing legend. So this legend, again, not particularly well-known in Italy, comes from the Middle East. And the image I want to talk about really illustrates, pun intended, the multinational nature of the San Mattia choir books. This image is not a cutting, so the one we just talked about was a cutting. This is the image that's still part of the intact volume in Milan, which is found in the Biblioteca Nazionale Gaidenze. This image is part of the cycle of the Feast of the Nativity. Now, I should just back up a bit and explain that liturgically, there are often three nativity feasts, one for the vigil, which is the night before, a feast for the morning of Christmas, and then a feast that celebrates Christmas Day. This particular miracle image, it marks the feast of the eve of Christmas. So the baby has just been born and Mary is recovering in the manger. This is what art historians would also sometimes refer to as the bathing scene, because sometimes in this Christmas Eve scene, the Christ child is being washed 
the typical iconography is usually that he's being washed by one or two midwives while Mary lies recumbent on a bed of some sort, and St. Joseph is usually hanging out in the background. What is extremely unusual about the Milan miracle, as we're going to call it, is that there are no midwives and the virgin is the one bathing the Christ child herself. So the image has a typical nativity iconography in that it's set inside of the barn where Christ was born and there's a night sky and we have the natural elements and then inside the barn we have a few animals and in the Milan miracle we have Saint Joseph who's standing beside the virgin and his little hands are clasped in prayer and he's looking upward but Mary is not lying recovering on a bed. Instead, she's right at the foreground of the image, holding the Christ child in a large wooden basin, washing him. What is also remarkable in this image is that on the left, and I'm talking about the viewer's left, there are three figures standing beside the Virgin, watching her bathe the baby. And these figures are a man, and he's standing next to a woman who's holding a little baby of her own. And I will unpack this mystery in just a moment. So first we need to discuss what it is the Virgin is doing. Because while washing one's newborn baby doesn't seem all that remarkable, in this case it is, because the iconographic tradition is not what we would expect. There are myriad examples in manuscripts, mosaics, painted altar pieces that show the Virgin, as I said, lying on a bed, recovering while the Christ child is being bathed by one or two midwives. Now, for most people, when they think of images of the nativity of Christ, the idea of midwives being present doesn't really occur to them. But during the Middle Ages, medieval people would have expected midwives to be present. So that in and of itself would not have been uncommon. In the Gospel of James, there's even an entire anecdote related to the birth of Christ that centers around the doubting midwife. But that's a story for another podcast. So this is what's unusual. We see that the Virgin is doing this maternal heavy lifting. And again, the question is, where did this come from? Why? Now, as I said, the Milan Gradual was painted by Cristoforo Cortesi the other illuminator responsible for the San Mattia series. It's very likely that he was instructed by the monks precisely what this image should look like, what to paint, what to include. So we need to ask the question, where did this idea come from? Why are there no midwives? Why is the Virgin watch, washing the Christ child? How did the monks become aware of this particular narrative, if this is indeed the Materia bathing legend? So. For these questions, I was guided to look beyond the nativity legend that was known in Italy at this time. And instead, I was pointed to the Materia bathing legend, which has its roots in Egypt and is connected to a longer tradition of pilgrimage and faith stories. The Materia legend gets its name from a town in Egypt, just near modern day Cairo. And in this miraculous event, which is connected to the flight into Egypt narrative, the story says that the Holy Family stopped to rest inside of a walled garden in the town of Materia. And while they were in there, the Christ child struck his foot against the ground and a little well sprung up. And in this flowing water, the Virgin bathed the baby. And in some versions, she also washed his clothing. Mary Dizon has written about this particular legend and has attempted to trace the journey of the legend out of Egypt and into Western Europe. 
So just as with the Beirut miracle legend, I wanted to better understand how the story came to be in the spiritual canon of the Venetian Camaldolese. Because again, just as with the Beirut miracle legend, there's no liturgical precedence in the Florentine choir books of Santa Maria degli Angeli. So this says that they were looking to another source for this material, and they found this legend elsewhere. Dizon has suggested that the Materia legend first came to Europe from Egypt via pilgrims traveling back from the Holy Land, which makes sense. Pilgrims often collected stories and legends and brought them along for the ride. This particular legend apparently made its European debut in England and then became scattered around other parts of the continent, again, probably through word of mouth, and eventually found its way into Italy. But how did it come to Venice? And why was it important enough to the monks at San Mattia to be illustrated in their most sacred books? The long and somewhat unfulfilling answer is that more research is required. The liturgy of San Mattia, and by extension that of San Michele, needs to be probed more thoroughly to see if there is indeed a connection between this specific legend and anything in their liturgical canon. Additionally, we could also look to other visual sources within the Kamaldolese visual wheelhouse because the, the Kamaldolese had a very rich visual language, visual corpus, visual tradition. And so it's quite possible that with further investigation, we may be able to find something that tells us where they might have gotten inspiration for this, the inclusion of this particular narrative. So the bathing of the Christ child by the Virgin requires more work. But I want to return to something I mentioned earlier, uh, which was the presence of this family, you know, the, these figures that do not appear in any biblical narrative, but are clearly inserted directly into this miracle narrative. Now, unlike the Holy Family, who are wearing biblical style garments, this, these figures, the man, the woman, and, and the little baby, are wearing contemporary clothing, which is clothing that would have been worn during the late Trecento or the Quattrocento. So the garments are an indicator that these figures are anachronistic. They don't have halos, which then tells us that they're not saints. And the man has his hands clasped in prayer, and his body language is mirroring that of Joseph's, except these three figures are watching the Virgin very intently. Now, these people are probably patrons. That's the most likely answer, who were donors that helped to finance the manuscript. The act of donation in the production of a work of art is certainly not uncommon, nor is the fact that they're present in the image. You know, many of us will have seen donor portraits, especially in altarpieces, where the donors are included in the image. But what does raise an eyebrow is the size of the figures. So unlike many donor portraits in altarpieces and other manuscripts, the donors are usually tiny, they're often kneeling, praying, supplicating, begging the much larger figure of the Virgin for her holy intercession. It's their diminutive size that reflects their humanness, their deeply flawed and sinful selves that need to be saved. But in the Milan miracle, the secular group of people are the same size as the Holy Family. Moreover, they're not kneeling, they're not supplicating, they're standing literally shoulder to shoulder with the Virgin, watching her enact what is a very intimate and, and private familial action with the baby. So there isn't that sense of humility. 
Ultimately, this image leaves us with more questions than answers, but it does reflect the multicultural nature of this choir book and directly the multicultural nature of Venice during this period. The third and final image that I want to talk about in this podcast is, in my opinion, just as mysterious as the previous one, the Milan Miracle, because it, it leaves us with a lot, a lot of open questions, which is exciting to consider. This image is also a cutting. So remember, we looked at a cutting with the Beirut Miracle legend. The Materia bathing legend is, is intact. And now this cutting is removed from its original codicological context, just like the Beirut miracle legend. And just like the Beirut image, this cutting can also be found at the Cluny Museum in Paris. And here we have an initial B, so think of the letter B, and inside of the image is a church and a large angel is flying above it. The background shows us the scenes of some mountains and some trees, and it appears that the church is floating on the sea. Just as with the two other miracle images I've talked about, I find myself wondering, what is the narrative being depicted here? The scholarship and literature at the Cluny Museum lists this as being the Holy House of Loretto miracle, which I'll explain in a moment. And while it might be that this is the story being told, when you spend long enough looking at this image, you do begin to question whether or not this is what you're seeing. Firstly, we need some background. What is the Holy House of Loretto miracle? Well, this is another very old legend coming out of the Middle East, but it's connected to a very famous Marian pilgrimage shrine, which is now based in Loretto, Italy. And it's literally a small house that was over the Grotto of the Virgin, and it's believed to have been the home of the Virgin, so where she was conceived and born. It's also apparently where the angel Gabriel came to announce God's grand plan for her womb. In a lot of ways, this legend is kind of a bit of a hat trick of miracles, um, you know, because you have the fact that the Virgin was conceived there, the Immaculate Conception. She was conceived without sin, miracle number one. You have the Annunciation, miracle number two. And then you have this story that claims that the house was lifted by angels, removed from Nazareth, landed in Dalmatia for a few years in 1294, and then relocated to Loretto, so miracle number three. The version with the angels provides a simple iconographic analysis that we can break down, which suggests that there should be more than one angel. Oftentimes they're touching the house. The house is sometimes seen over the ocean. The iconography can change as uh, this point was recently brought to my attention. So again, we have to keep in mind that this image was made in the early 1400s. So that's the iconographic model we're working with. But again, there are lots of things in this image that would create doubt. So for example, the house appears to be floating, but there's only one angel. So it's not plural, the way we've seen in other iconographic examples. And the angel is not touching the house, which again, in other versions of the legend, there appears to be some kind of physical contact. And we just don't have that here. So again, it leaves us with a lot of questions. Now, the legend itself did not originate in Italy, but came over and has been infused into the liturgical and artistic culture of Venice, as well as other places. And as a port city, it's unsurprising that we would find these types of multicultural influences, again, pun intended, floating around. And it forces us to think about how different groups, in this case, the monks at San Mattia, drew on these multicultural legends for spiritual inspiration. 
The spiritual inspiration then became the visual and artistic inspiration for the illuminations produced by the Murano master and Cortesi for these choir books. This legend, the Holy House of Loretto legend, must have had significance in Venice because although the house ended up in Loretto, which is in Italy, there's no direct connection between the Camaldolese and Loretto, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they wouldn't have known about it because it was it was one of the better known miracle legends, certainly amongst the ones that I've talked about today. It would not be unreasonable to think that the Loretto miracle legend was known in Venice, again, especially as it was transported around and stories travel word of mouth. But until further research is done on the possible liturgical connections between the Camaldolese order and their liturgy and this narrative, it leaves us with some big unknowns, such as how did it end up in these specific liturgical books? Now that we've talked about these three legends, it's time to start wrapping up. So where does this leave us? I've talked about three images in Venice that were made in Venice during the first half of the 15th century that depict miracle legends not in and of themselves from Venice. These miracle stories, the Beirut miracle legend, the Materia bathing legend, and the Holy House of Loretto miracle have their roots in diverse parts of the world, including the Middle East and North Africa. These stories migrated over to Italy, probably with pilgrims and via trade and commerce, and became infused into the liturgical practices of the Camaldolese order, particularly in Venice. The presence of multiculturalism in this part of Italy really shouldn't be surprising, given the amount of social and economic traffic that one could find shuffling around the city. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, we tend to think of the idea of multiculturalism and interconnectedness through the lens of our modern, technologically advanced worldview. But as scholarship has shown, the medieval and early modern world were very interconnected. Cultures and countries did not exist as little self-contained environments. And art is probably one of the best examples to prove this point. You only need to look at the work of the Murano master to see that he was drawing on artistic inspiration from various different environs, both geographical and cultural. His work shows the use of Lombard features, such as the rich ornamentation of the garments that were worn by his figures. There's also the presence of gilt emulsion of the foliate forms that were decorated and incised into the burnished gold backgrounds of the choir books images, and also on the burnished gold halos of the saints. And the faces of his figures, which are one of the defining stylistic features of his work, indicate that he may have seen faces, particularly those in the frescoes painted by Giovanni da Modena in the Basilica of San Petronia in Bologna. And this is because the Murano master's faces have this incredible plasticity that give their skin an almost tactile quality as if you you touched it, it would feel fleshy. And their expressions are highly emotive. Again, something that was seen in Giovanni da Modena's work. Now, if he had seen these images in San Petronio, this would not have been a novel approach as it wasn't uncommon for artists to travel and bring back with them styles and techniques that they wanted to employ in their native environment. The past scholarship on the Murano master has conflated him with another well-known artistic personality, a painter called Babello da Pavia, who worked on some major commissions in and around Venice during the late 14th and early 15th centuries. Like Christopher Cortesi, Babello's career is well-documented because of extant contracts and other documents. 
One of his best known works was the Visconti Hours, which he made for the Visconti family dynasty. And he also painted works for the Gonzaga family, but he was exiled for the odd misdemeanor or two, moral misdemeanor that is. He was exiled to Venice, where he lived and worked until his death in 1470. But for most of the 20th century, art historians conflated his work with the Murano master, claiming that the Murano master's work was probably Ravello's early phase. We now know that these were absolutely two different illuminators, but it's with good reason that there was confusion, because when you look at their individual oeuvres, you can see similarities of certain stylistic features. What this really tells us is that the artistic community in Venice was a vibrant, interconnected grid of artists working in close proximity and in all probability collaboration, drawing on the visual and stylistic features from diverse regions of cultures and drawing them into their native visual context. Going forward, the places where we could really make some headway would be to deepen our investigation of workshops in Florence, Venice, Rome, Siena, so major artistic centers, but it would also be beneficial to include smaller surrounding regions. A more probative look at the dynamics of workshops in this period could also help to shed light onto the artistic relationship and the economic relationship between the artist and the patron. Certainly, the application of various tools from the field of digital humanities can be extremely beneficial. As someone who has worked and continues to work largely with fragmented objects, Having the technology to virtually bring these objects back together is so exciting. Architectural art historians have really had a monopoly on the use of this digital technology. But I, I believe that artists who work on, or art historians rather, who work on smaller objects like illuminated manuscripts could also benefit from this type of technology. Because typically there are two main reasons why an object like a dismembered choir book would need to be virtually brought back together. One, because the various parts might literally be scattered all over the world and not physically able to be brought back together. And the second reason can be that parts are now lost or destroyed and that these parts need to be revisualized. In terms of the exploration of multiculturalism, there's a lot of good work being done at the moment and we should continue to build on this. I'm thinking of various museum exhibitions, such as Barbara Drake Boehm and Melanie Holcomb's exhibition from 2016 at the Metropolitan Museum of Art that was called Jerusalem 1000 to 1400, Every People Under Heaven, or the Getty Museum's exhibition more recently, Balthazar, a Black African King in Medieval and Renaissance Art, which ran from November 2019 until February 2020. Both of these shows examine the presence of what anthropologists would call the quote-unquote other with a capital O in medieval culture vis-a-vis -vis the art produced at this time. Additionally, within the discipline of art history, we've become more aware of the fact that for many decades, art history usually meant white Western European art. And as we are now seeing more and more, the world knew about itself and that people in Europe were aware of the existence of people from other parts of the globe. So it's not that medieval people had no idea that things were happening elsewhere. It's just that we as modern day academics have had to catch up with that awareness. But things are changing. The discipline is widening to bring various strands of art history, such as Chinese art or African art, into a more cohesive pedagogical tapestry. And it just makes sense to teach from a place of inclusivity because it provides not only a broader picture of the medieval world for students, but it also helps to explain why art looks the way it does. It can help us to better understand why certain stylistic features are present in a work. 
instead of just being confused by the idea that an artist working in, say, 14th century Bologna could have included decorative patterns native to palaces in the Middle East. I really hope that you've enjoyed today's podcast, and I realize we covered a lot of ground in a short period of time. And I realize that it also leaves us with more questions, but I hope it's left you with a wider range of things to think about. Because just because a question remains unanswered doesn't make it a bad thing. It just means that there's still work to be done. And that's a very good thing. It's a very exciting thing. If you like what you've heard, you can follow me on Instagram at Stephanie underscore Azzarello. That's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E underscore A-Z-Z-A-R-E-L-L-O. And it's here that I post about all kinds of art, usually medieval and early modern. But I also like to throw in other genres for good measure. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages, an anthology-style podcast series brought to you by the Graduate Student Committee of the Medieval Academy of America. Season 1 was produced by Jonathan Correa Reyes, Rita Mera, and Logan Quigley, with music by Anna O'Connell. For more information on the Multicultural Middle Ages, follow the links in our episode description. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button to keep up with new episodes.